There are people who profess love for the Bible who know very little about it. They have read a book or two, some psalms perhaps, the story of Job. They've read the first chapters of Genesis. They've poked their nose in the book of Revelation. And thanks to Christmas and Easter, they're fairly familiar with the birth and death and resurrection narratives in the life of Jesus. They appreciate the Bible. It's a good book that has benefited them. But honestly, they have not read the vast majority of it. And they have no significant knowledge of its overarching message and its integral themes. Then there are, secondly, people who love the Bible and have invested much more time actually reading it. They have read it cover to cover, perhaps a number of times. They could point to very key passages in the Bible and could probably quote some verses to you. But they have read the Bible almost exclusively for devotional profit. They have read the Bible with an eye that has become trained to leap from passage to passage, identifying key texts and phrases and verses that will directly benefit their spiritual growth. The subtle result is they naturally filter out everything that does not make sense. Everything that does not commend itself to their perception of reality as it is. Now undoubtedly everyone, no matter how mature, has been through these stages. Appreciating the Bible but knowing very little about it or reading it devotionally such that we filter out what does not commend itself to our perception of reality. But I'd certainly like us all to be pointing to this third class of Bible readers. These readers have matured in their walk with God such that they now read Scripture with an earnest desire to heed the whole counsel of God. They read to grasp the Bible's grand storyline and major themes, which means that they're reading the Bible through. It may take some time, but they're reading it from cover to cover to gain its major themes, to grapple with its every declaration, no matter what the Bible says. And these believers are distinguished from the first two groups by a common experience. They have been troubled by what the Bible says. Many people filter out these troubling statements and these disconcerting doctrines. I mean, you can't entirely escape it, but you can allow your mind to kind of just cruise through those ideas. They learn to smooth over things that don't quite sound right. I don't quite get that. That doesn't sound right, but there's a lot more Bible to read. I'm going to keep pressing on. But I would say to you that if you read the Bible from cover to cover, bending your mind not only to hear what you want to hear, not only to hear what is comforting, but to hear what it actually says, you will be deeply troubled on occasion. No text on earth provides such comfort and encouragement and wonder as God's revealed Word. But when you read the Bible honestly and thoroughly, striving to come to terms with all that God has said, it will rattle you at times. The Bible says some things we do not naturally want to hear. 
Now, that's fairly obvious to all of us on one level. It rebukes us in our sin and in our sinful desires. And sometimes we don't want to hear that. It brings conviction. But I'm, I'm not speaking of that sense so much. As the times when it troubles us, as it reveals God, as it speaks of His purposes, a God who always thinks as you expect Him to think, whose every word and deed is fully understandable and void of mystery, who never stands outside the narrow parameters of your reason, let me tell you, that God is an idol. That is a God made into your image. He never says anything that's troubling. He never stirs you to consider whether He's just or right or good because He always acts according to expectation. In light of the Word of God, that God is an idol. When God says, My ways are not your ways, My thoughts are not your thoughts, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are My ways higher than your ways and My thoughts than your thoughts, you know what? He means it. He means exactly what He's saying there. And through our series of studies in divine providence, we have encountered this God. We have considered revelation about God and His purposes that stretch outside the parameters of our natural assumptions and expectations. We have been stretched to learn in Scripture, for instance, that our righteous God ordains evil and sovereignly governs the sinful choices that people make. We have been stretched to embrace the revelation of the compatibility of divine sovereignty and human freedom. To believe both that God ordains all that comes to pass and that people freely exercise their wills to do what they most want to do. We have come to understand in the pages of Scripture that before time began, God predestined individuals for salvation, electing to save them, and rightly holding eternally accountable all who do not exercise their free will to trust Him as Savior. Now, if we sat down to write a Bible, I would suspect not one of those points would get in it. And as we first come to encounter these ideas that God has revealed in His Word, they trouble us. Today I'd like to return to another clear support of this important doctrine of divine election found in Romans chapter 9. And we will be troubled. On some level, from our natural minds, this passage will be difficult. Before we get there, I'd like to, you to turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 12. Before we delve into Romans 9, it's helpful to first consider the theme of divine election in the Old Testament. I think this is one place that we often get off track. We come simply to New Testament texts and we consider them in all of their troubling force, but we fail to really gain the foundation for election in the Old Testament, which is very clearly there. The election of Abraham we consider first of all in Genesis chapter 12 where God chooses Abraham as the one through whom he will work his saving purposes. We read in Genesis chapter 12, having been introduced to Abraham, or Abram here yet, in uh, the 11th chapter of Genesis, 
In a sense, out of nowhere, we read that the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now clearly, Abraham does nothing to earn God's favor. He does nothing to seek after God. Abraham is a pagan living in Mesopotamia, and God chooses him as the one who will become patriarch of the family through whom the promised Messiah will come and salvation will come to his people. It is very clear here that God has made a sovereign choice of Abraham. Chapter 18 of Genesis, verse 17. Chapter 18 and verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, And he speaks here of how Abraham's Abraham's life will honor God and how he will bless his family and how he will become and be this patriarch of the salvation line. But notice that simple phrase in verse 19, the way it's oriented, for I have chosen him. The only thing that we see Abraham doing is believing God. Genesis 15 and verse 6. And God, of course, counting that to him as righteousness. Abraham is commended only for faith in the Lord who chooses him. There is no evidence, there is no statement of Abraham choosing God. Now, in a sense, he does. He responds to the divine call. But it is God who chooses Abraham. Secondly, we look at the election of national Israel. Now this fits, if you work your way to Exodus chapter 19, this fits obviously very closely with the call of Abraham. We have the chosen family. We look now at the chosen nation. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 3. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him out of the mountains saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine. And you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And the people confirm the covenant in verse 8. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But we see here God's election of this nation in relation to God, a treasured possession. In relation to the nations, a kingdom of priests. In relation to their identity as a people, a holy nation. We ask the question as we did with Abraham. What did Israel do to gain this choice? By God. Deuteronomy 7 answers that question. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6. We read that you, that is Israel, are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now notice this, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. You were the least important. You had no great army. You had no great economy. You had no great name. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Israel is chosen as God's unique possession on the force of God's electing love alone. God loved Israel because He chose to love her. That's the answer. As God speaks in Isaiah 41, He says, You, Israel, My servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, My friend, You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, listen to this, you are my servant, I have chosen you. It runs throughout the Old Testament text. Now let's turn to Romans 9 and fast forward many centuries to the era of the early church. Jesus has laid down His life as the final sacrifice for sin, fulfilling all to which the Old Covenant pointed. Yet by the time that Paul writes to the Roman believers, he has evangelized the Roman world for about a quarter of a century. And it has become increasingly clear that Israel as a nation has rejected her Messiah. It was really unthinkable. The chosen people of God had rejected the Son of Man. This One who comes to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. This One prophesied in Daniel 9. This Savior who has come to save His people. Israel has said no. On the other hand, just as shockingly, multitudes of Gentiles were embracing the Gospel. As we think in the whole Bible terms then, we have a problem here. The Old Testament prophesied the inclusion of the Gentiles in the saving purposes of God. But no one saw this coming. This overwhelming response on the part of the Gentiles and this very underwhelming response on the part of Israel, what does it all mean? What does this response by the Gentiles mean for Israel? Has the church replaced Israel as God's people now that Israel has rejected her Messiah? Could it be that in a bitter irony, the Gospel itself has slammed the door shut on God's elect nation? That there is no future for Israel? In Romans 9, Paul labors to prove that the Gospel's success among the Gentiles is not evidence that God has abandoned Israel. The Gospel spread among the Gentiles says something else. It is not an evidence of God's infidelity to Israel. It is rather an evidence of God's sovereignty in salvation. 
So Paul would say to this concern, you're reading the present circumstances wrongly, and the Old Testament brings this out and indeed supports the fact that God is sovereign in salvation. He can choose whomever He wishes. And He does among the Jews and the Gentiles. So Paul is saying what is happening now is entirely consistent with all that God has done in the past, and it is consistent with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It is consistent to see Jews and Gentiles responding as God chooses individuals for salvation. More on that in a moment, but we see first of all, Paul here in Romans 9, 1 and following he acknowledges this heart-wrenching reality. Israel has rejected her Messiah. Verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh speaking as a Jew about the Jewish people. With earnest sincerity, he expresses this anguish of soul at the very thought that Israel would reject her Messiah. And so intense is this horror that should it be the will of God, he would be willing to bear God's wrath for Israel. The horror of her rejection of Messiah is made all the more acute when Paul considers salvation history. Here he just summarizes the Old Testament. Verse 4, they are Israelites, children of Jacob. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. God chose this nation as His own people. He had uniquely blessed her with His glorious presence, with His saving grace, with His covenantal promises to Abraham and to the nation on Mount Sinai, and to King David, and their distinct worship centered at the temple. All of this is God's work with the nation of Israel. All of this displaying His salvation. Indeed, Messiah Himself is an offspring of the chosen lineage through whom God promised to crush Satan's head. Jesus is nothing less than God over all. Blessed forever. And yet Israel has rejected her Messiah. Now there's a conclusion that can easily be drawn on the basis of this reality. The wrong conclusion can be drawn, and Paul makes clear that we should not draw this conclusion. Verse 6, But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. If anyone concludes from Israel's rejection of Jesus that God's promise to Israel has failed, they misunderstand salvation history. They're missing the point. Paul will argue through verse 29 that the gospel's saving power in the lives of Gentiles does not evidence, as we've said, infidelity to Israel. It evidences sovereignty and salvation. It evidences God's freedom and power and wisdom to save individuals as He pleases. So the right conclusion we find in the middle of verse 6 and following. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are His offspring. What is He saying there? 
Let's go back to the Old Testament and realize, says Paul, that not everyone in Israel was a true believing Israelite. Did God save every Israelite when He placed the nation within this covenantal relationship with Him? No. God chose Israel as His people, but not every descendant of Abraham was part of the line of promise. There was always a circle in a circle. There was the circle of Israel, but there was a circle within that circle of those who were genuine believers. His support he draws here from the book of Genesis at the end of verse 7. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now there it is there. Ishmael was a child of Abraham. God promised to bless the nations through Abraham and through his offspring, but not through Ishmael. Only through Isaac, Genesis 21. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Ishmael, though a child of the flesh, was not the chosen line through whom Messiah would come. Isaac was. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Remember, Sarah is barren. She cannot have a child. But God says it will not be through Ishmael. It will be through Isaac that this promise flows, that salvation comes. He goes to a second demonstration, another case to support his conclusion. That deals with Jacob and Esau. Verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So now we're considering the next generation of promise. The offspring of the son of promise, Isaac, and his wife, Rebekah, have twins. You could argue, well, of course Ishmael is not part of the promised line because Ishmael, that was the whole situation, remember, with Abraham and Hagar, and that was not a good situation. It was not appropriate. It was a, a godless way of trying to answer the problem of infertility and all of that. But what do we do with Jacob and Esau? They're twins. Here we have not only the same mother and father, but the Greek text here, the English just doesn't even deal with this. But the Greek text actually indicates that these twins are the product of the same seminal emission. They're conceived at exactly the same time. What's the point? Verse 11, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I have hated. Genesis 25 reveals that divine election has nothing to do with human merit. Paul is reading the book of Genesis in this way and he's using it as support for his thesis. God's purpose in election is what matters. Before either boy had any capacity to earn God's favor, God chose Jacob, not Esau, when these twin boys were still in the womb of their mother, Rebekah. You remember the whole scene there. She's confused as to what's going on and why these boys are fighting even within the womb. And God makes it clear, I have chosen Jacob and not Esau. 
the promise will flow through the offspring of Abraham, not through both of these boys, but only through one. God did not hate Esau emotionally. The point is simply that compared with the love that he had for Jacob, it was nothing other than hatred for Esau, as you compare it in that sense. Or to say it another way, he chose Jacob and he did not choose Esau. Although Esau was fully an offspring of the promised line. So you see the circle within the circle. There's the chosen people, the chosen family, but there's the chosen son, Jacob, not Esau. Now in the larger picture, God has then the sovereign right to choose whomever He wants to choose among the Jews or the Gentiles. But more narrowly at hand, the way Paul has interpreted Genesis is sure to raise some objections. What he's saying here is as we understand God's sovereignty in electing people to salvation, we need to realize this is where the Bible has actually started in the election of Abraham and in the election of, for instance, Jacob rather than Esau. This really shouldn't be confusing to us in one sense as we read the Scriptures. But there are these troubling objections. Does God elect individuals to salvation apart from human merit? If so, is God just in doing so? Is this fair? Can sinners be rightly held accountable for sin? Can God choose some for salvation and hold others accountable for rejecting Him? Is that right? Well, as a good theologian, you know what Paul does here, right? He, he runs away from the point. Does Paul ever do that? Rather than running away from the point, he takes it on. And he talks about it very specifically. This is a troubling point. He acknowledges that. But he deals with it very specifically, and he argues now that the basis of salvation is God's electing grace. Verse 14, What shall we say then? If we're tracking with Paul, a natural objection will come to mind. Isn't it unfair of God to choose some for salvation and not choose others? You will have that natural objection. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Before we get to his by no means, which of course is his answer, I want us to just come to terms with these two questions. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? Follow me here. If we interpret the doctrine of election so that there are no objections, no troubling implications, then we're trying to do better than Paul. And we're not tracking with Scripture. Paul says essentially, now listen, if you're following me, you know what I'm saying, that God is sovereign in His election of individuals unto salvation, you will have a natural objection. Any human being comparing life with other human beings, any human who knows that salvation is by grace alone, is going to wonder about those who aren't chosen. You will have this natural objection. It will trouble you. What is Paul's answer? He says, by no means is God unjust. Verse 15, For He says to Moses, 
I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Did you hear that phrase? It does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What Paul is saying is that it is God's prerogative to set His mercy on whomever He chooses, and He is fully just and perfectly right in doing so, and it is not our business to question God here. Paul insists that God chooses individuals unto salvation and is wholly just in doing so. He then appeals again to Scripture. Now to the book of Exodus, verse 17, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. How is God's name proclaimed through Pharaoh? God telling Pharaoh, let Israel go, and Pharaoh hardening his heart and not doing it. So that, says Paul, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Are we troubled? God sovereignly places His electing grace on whomever He wills. He also sovereignly withholds such mercy from others, permitting their hard hearts to remain unaffected by His offer of salvation. God doesn't in a sinister, arbitrary way harden hearts. But He has chosen to permit hard hearts to turn from Him and to remain in their hardness. I would suggest to you If you're going to listen to what God is saying, you should be troubled. Because verse 19, Paul goes on and says, You will say to me then, if you're following me, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? We're just robots. Who can resist the will of God? How can he hold us accountable is the real point. If you understand what Paul is saying, you'll naturally question how God can do this. I would suggest this then. If you have a neat, tidy way of removing this tension, you're not tracking with Paul. If you get what he's saying, you will find it troubling. Now remember last week I offered a suggestion that many have offered as to how to remove the tension. God in eternity past looked forward to those who would choose Him and on the basis of the will that they would exercise, He elects to salvation those who will choose Him and He does not elect those who will reject Him. Now what that does is removes the tension. That seems perfectly fair. God will look ahead and He will do what people have chosen to do. There's two problems with this. One is it bases everything on what people have chosen. And the text says the exact opposite. It relies on the will and the purpose of God. The other problem with it is that it completely removes the tension which Paul says must be there if you're understanding the truth. So, and I I don't mean this disrespectfully at all, but those who take that view, it seems to me, are trying to help God out. And they're trying to fix things that Paul isn't fixing. There's a tension here that must remain. 
And as he deals with that tension, he says, you will say then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, Paul himself could stand in here and say, well, this is how it works. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility work compatibly with each other. Paul has made that argument in other places. But brace yourself, and particularly if this is really a struggle, you've got to brace yourself here. You know what Paul says? Verse 20, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? I can tell you pretty clearly that's not an answer Dan Miller would give to anybody. I wouldn't be thinking of that kind of an answer. But under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, that's what the text says. Who are you to question God? So we've got to be big here. And we have to come to terms with the depth of the sovereignty of God, of His purposes and of His greatness. I don't think he's saying it's evil to probe the depths of God's saving purposes, but it is evil to judge the purposes of God as unjust. And again, what many people do there is say, well, this can't be the way it is. We'll help God out, we'll work around it, and we'll remove all the tension. Here's how Paul removes the tension. He throws fuel right on the fire. And he says, who are you to answer back to God? Now, I might be talking to some here, I don't know, but you might be saying, you know what, I can't handle this. I don't like this, I'm uncomfortable, I don't want to be here, I don't like to think through these ideas. You're popping into category three in the way you're reading the Bible. And let me say to you, we understand. We understand in this church, we understand as individuals, because all have to come through a process to come to terms with what God's saying. Be patient. Take your time. And I would encourage you, keep reading what the Bible says. Don't read it to try to figure out how to work around it. Read what it's actually saying. Read this passage. Read Ephesians 1. Read them carefully and over again to try to perceive what exactly is the text saying. Be patient. We must all be patient with one another. And there is no room, there should be no room in our assembly anywhere for impatience on these matters. This is hard. It is troubling. And God knows that. So take your time, be patient, keep working. But I would also encourage you, exhort you, do not try to help God out by removing the tension. Verse 19 says there will be tension. Verse 14 says there will be a troubled response. Let it go. Let it be there. Live with it. Whatever you do, do not minimize the sovereignty and the freedom of God to do as He pleases, because that's the whole point here. Why does God harden some and choose others for salvation? We'll have no final answer to that, but there is an initial answer, verse 22. What if God, and I would read this in the Greek text, I I would prefer it to be said this way, what of it? Are you going to question God if indeed? What of it, verse 22, 
If God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, with long-suffering patience, God endures the rebellion of those whose sin excites His wrath. He does this so that He may thereby reveal the justice of His holy anger and the majesty of His divine power when He judges sinners. And He does this, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. In fact, what is going on individually here is going on with the nation of Israel. In her rejection, the Gentiles are coming to see the mercy of God to know the riches of His glory because of this rejection. In His infinite wisdom, God knows that His mercy can only be seen against the black backdrop of God's judgment of sinners. I can't understand that. I don't know how this works. But I've got to rest in the God who runs this universe and who has saved us by His mercy. In His infinite mercy, He's chosen to save not only a remnant out of the Jews, but a vast number of Gentiles as well. And the point is, this is His sovereign prerogative. A prerogative He has been exercising from the earliest stages of salvation history. That electing grace that He placed on the nation of Israel now operates toward individuals in all nations. And in His sovereign grace, that amazing grace has reached to us what is the conclusion then that we hold this truth to ourselves? No, the conclusion is we realize we have no right to the mercy of God. And we look for others that would join us in saving grace. I cannot fully understand why God elects some individuals unto salvation and not others. All I can know is that He does it to make known the riches of His glory. God has every right to send every human being to hell. He is under no obligation to save any of us. And we must come to terms with that. So the question is not, is God fair? God is definitely not fair. If He was fair, we'd all be in hell. But in displaying His wrath against vessels prepared for destruction, He makes known the riches of His glory for vessels prepared for eternal glory. And that's been there all along, Paul says, verse 25, as indeed says Hosea the prophet, those who were not My people I will call My people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not My people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. What high privilege is ours to know Christ as Savior. And it's here that the troubling realities of God's electing grace give way to glory and to a sense of utter humility and unbounded joy. None of us deserves this grace. None of us has earned this grace. None of this grace is based on what God has seen that we have chosen and willed as much as we do indeed respond humanly to the Gospel. It is by His electing grace alone that I am, as a genuine believer, a child of the living God. 
one of His children for eternity. If I think I deserve that, I'll keep the Gospel to myself. If I know that I do not deserve that, and it is His pure mercy, I will seek with broken heart and tears the salvation of every lost sheep of Christ. Because I've not earned it. I don't deserve it. I don't understand it. But I revel in the mercy and the grace of God. This is serious, serious business. There are people that are going into a Christless eternity. There are people that have been recipients of His mercy. We need to proclaim that message and take it wide and proclaim it fully. But when it comes back to me as God's child, I can say nothing else. But this is amazing grace. Father, our words fail us. We are so easily troubled. We are so quick to appeal to our own reason, our own way of seeing things. We're quick to limit You to our own understanding. I realize, Father, that the call upon our lives here is far beyond what we can conjure up in our own strength. We must have Your grace and Your Spirit to comfort us in these troubling words and to nurture within us a deep sense of worship and thanksgiving as we consider Your electing grace. Without this knowledge, we could not live with the reality of hell. Without this knowledge, we could not proclaim the Gospel with confidence and with clarity because it would all rest on us and our ingenuity. God, with this truth, we cannot do anything but worship and fall at Your feet in abject spiritual poverty, rejoicing in this amazing grace. May we do that with purity of heart and thanksgiving, though we don't understand it all. I pray that it would birth within this church, within our individual lives, a depth of worship and love and adoration that never ends throughout all eternity. And for any who are blinded to the glory of the Gospel that are among us, we pray by Your mercy that You will open their eyes as we appeal to them to turn from their sin and to obey the Gospel. Bring them to that salvation today. To not get their nose in Your notebook, but to simply heed the call of the Gospel. To repent and turn to Christ as Savior. To this end, we labor with sincerity in prayer that You would bring saving grace to any in need of it here, according to Your sovereign will. Through Christ we pray. Amen.